I had an addiction to hope because when you've had a hard life, like you need hope. Okay. Yep. You can become addicted to it where, for example, during my second bankruptcy, I hoped something was going to come along. I hoped something was going to come and save me. It didn't. Right. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know, our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Susie Batiste. How are you doing? Wonderful. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for coming on. So always like to dive in. I assume that you weren't born and immediately like, I have to make my bathroom smell much better at three years old. They're like, this just won't do. Uh, so would love to hear like, where are you from? Where did it all start? Yeah, I love that you say that because a lot of people go, did you ever dream about this, I'm like, no, actually, I didn't. Okay, <laughs> it wasn't like a huge passion that you're like, I need to, this is my conquest. <laughs> no, 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 no. So I grew up in Arkansas uh-huh. and grew up in a pretty what we would consider poor to today's standards. Just you know, we made our clothes. The wonderful thing about growing up poor, though, is that I became very resourceful. Okay, so I didn't think about buying things. I thought about making things, which has resulted in me being a maker. But I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional family. My dad, bipolar alcoholic, my mother addicted to pain pills. They divorced when I was 10 and I was super excited. My dad was a rageaholic. So that kind of tells you right there what 10 year olds excited that their parents are getting divorced, right? I was like, it's finally going to end. This is great. When you had that context that it wasn't normal, which is good being like, it's not normal to have this in your household. Yeah, yeah. And I just want out. So my mom married my stepfather, which molested my sister and I when I was 12, from 12 to 16. I was married, divorced and bankrupt by the time I was 20 years old. Uh, married, Married to get out of the house, started a business, I bought an old bridal salon and bought a bunch of old inventory. There was not enough inventory to actually, you know, make money. So I filed my bankruptcy when I was 20, tried to kill myself when I was 21, because I was like, who wants this life? Like, it's just effing hard, right? I'm out of here. That didn't work. I apparently really suck at that. And... And then I was in a abusive marriage and pregnant at 23. So I had two children, 23 to 25 years old, and escaped that marriage when I was 27 in another relationship when I was 28. So just bounced from relationship to relationship. And we had our daughter when I was 30 years old and life started getting a little bit normal. Okay. Still hard, but at least I was, you know, had 14 businesses all the way up 14, but I usually had a job and then at least a couple side hustles, so right? How, I'm curious, where did that come from? Because obviously, like, was it survival? Was it, what What drove you to taking those risks when you had so much, like a lot of people that gravitate toward entrepreneurship have a lot of like stability, frankly, from what I've seen. And they gravitate towards it because other things they're able to. In your case, there was no stability and you still kind of gravitated towards the chaos of business too. Yeah, because I, I wasn't ever in a career where I could make my own money. So I would have a job where this is your salary, right? Uh-huh. So I had limited finances. So, you know, my gosh, when I was 30 years old, I think I was making $18,000 a year trying to raise a family of five. Like it just, the numbers didn't add up. So I would, you know, make clothing or buy and sell merchandise on the weekend, just have stuff in the trunk of my car to make ends meet, right? Yeah. 
So that's always what my businesses were. Nothing born out of passion, everything out of survival. And I finally found some freedom when I became a cocktail waitress on a casino because I realized that I could make a lot of money, right? It's like, hold on. Are you still in Arkansas at this? No, I was in St. Louis by then. I'd, I'd gotten a job after my divorce in retail and they transferred me. I was like a district manager of a retail thing with limited income, which is why I had the side hustles. And I found out that someone worked on a casino in St. Louis and they could make like 500 bucks a night. I was like, are you kidding me? Like I'm in. So, you know, interviewed and the lady said, have you ever cocktailed? I'm like, no, but I think I can carry a tray and you'll cocktail. Well, it's harder than you think. I was a bit of a smart ass in that interview. <laughs> But I did. I ended up saving enough money to put a deposit down on a house. And then I got a job in recruiting. And it was, you know, I make X amount for each person I play. So I became like a rock star recruiter because it was the first time really in my career when it just depended on how hard I worked. And so all the ambition I had had scattered out before kind of came into a focus into a running lane, like, okay, let's go. And I was one of the top recruiters in the agency I worked at. How old were you at that point? I was probably 35, 34 is when I started recruiting. And you had, obviously you mentioned you had your two kids with your last husband and then you were at a one daughter with this current husband. Right? Yeah. So I had three children. Yep. And, were they, and they were with me. Yeah. Right. So all my children, yeah, all my children with me, with me, that was one of the hard things. When I said I escaped the marriage, I had to really, the abuse of marriage, I had to really strategize to keep my children. If, yep. you know, if I was just going to leave, there would be no strategizing. I just walked out the door, but it took really intense planning, actually moving to another state. I mean, lots of kind of that whole four years of my life could be like a whole John Grisham novel, just that, right? But I did have a lot of survival skills. So once I became a recruiter, I was like, oh, game on, dude. All I got to do. So I was dialing for dollars. Like, man, it was, I was placing more people than anybody in the agency. And then I realized that, and I bought, you know, the big house, got the Mercedes, got the Range Rover, first time in my life, like I'm making it. What I didn't realize is there could be an end to that, right? I was just, I was riding high, which is the way a lot of people do in the world. So I'd really leveraged myself where I was making a lot of money and I could pay the bills, but God forbid something happened. I had an idea to build a recruiting site based on matching a person's culture to a company's culture first. Uh And then the technical skills down below called it greener grass was in the final stages of getting $5 million in funding. Great idea. I had psychologists on board, all kinds of experts. You know, this was in 1999. So it was 20 something years ago, really advanced thinking for the time. And I had really put everything we had into it, which was very little, but mostly my time and energy. And it really stopped recruiting because I was about to get this money. And then the stock market crashed in 2001. And there came my second bankruptcy. (laughs) Okay. Now this one, I didn't bounce up from so easily. I really went into a I still get teary talking about it. Such a severe state of depression. Like I really thought I wasn't going to try to kill myself because I had children and I realized how selfish that was. If I hadn't had children, pretty much guarantee I wouldn't be here because I I thought I was just a complete failure in life. And, you know, nobody could probably work harder than me. And I had busted my ass for so many years and then just to have everything. And that's when I got down on my knees and did that proverbial (laughs) plea to God. Like I did it. And I just said, you got to take me because I'm done. 
Yeah. Like I give me cancer, give me something like I can't do this life anymore. And then of course, a couple of days later, I had this book on spirituality in my hands, man's search for meaning and then Byron Katie's loving what is. And I started a, a complete spiritual sabbatical at that point, really going inside. And I found peace and happiness for the first time in my life. And I didn't need all of that external success to fulfill me that I thought I did before. Yeah, it's it's incredible how much entrepreneurs tie their own, you know, self to their businesses. And when when your business is struggling, it feels like your life is struggling. When your business fails, it feels like you died. Like it's actually, yeah. there's, you know, a lot of biological studies around that and that chemical release that happens when your business is struggling. And it takes a lot of sort of soul searching and self-awareness to realize like it happens. It's not that big a deal. It doesn't mean anything and to kind of move on with it. And it's, I, I just, I watch a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with that because chances are like the chances and the, the sort of statistics are you're going to fail. Like you're going to fail once, you're going to fail twice, but you're going to fail. So like you have to kind of come to terms with it. And it's, it's, you know, I think there needs to be more talk about that because there's so many people that do go through that and don't understand that it's just kind of par for the course and take it as some huge affront to their entire again self. Yeah. And what I found, it wasn't just financial failure. I was spiritually bankrupt, personally bankrupt. I was bankrupt on all levels. I remember I went to this hypnotherapist and he said, you know what your problem is? You have no meaning in your life. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I have meaning. I have kids, you know, and he's like, no, you don't have any higher purpose. And he gave me the book, Man's Search for Meaning. And that's when I started kind of, you know, opening up to, holy crap, I've been living so self-centered and really honestly, because I had so much pain, Eric. So what I found is pain, whether it's psychological, spiritual, or physical can be all consuming. You want to talk about narcissistic, get somebody in pain. They're a narcissist. You know why? Because you're in freaking pain. That's it. That's all you can think about. So I was in that much pain. Yeah, it's the hierarchy of needs kind of, it kind of correlates where it's like, if your needs aren't met, you can't just be comfortable. You're not going to care about higher purpose and all these things like you care about just living at that point or not, as you've mentioned, like it becomes hard to come to terms with that. It makes sense. Yeah. And so you went through this spiritual, how long did the spiritual journey go on for? About four years. So I started like faux finishing and then helping do it a little interior design. I was just, I was doing enough business to where, you know, I was contributing to the family, but I didn't have any of the drive that I had before. It was absolutely opposite. I'm like, I could have just sat home by myself for four years if I hadn't had a family. And then I wrote a course called Inside Out, How to Create a Life You Desire by Going Within. And I had five women in the course. And I remember telling them about abundance. And I remember them looking at me going like, you just filed bankruptcy. Like you're teaching us about abundance. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I guess I need to make money. And then the idea for Poopery came to me and I've been on this journey for 14 years. (sighs) So, I mean, yes and no. I mean, there's something to be said. It's so I spent some time when I was a late teenager in India teaching, and you realize that living in abundance isn't necessarily financial because some of the poorest people in the world live with a feeling of abundance because yes. they don't. And it's, it's a little bit of expectation reality thing where it's like, if you don't expect to have, you mentioned it, a fancy house and a Range Rover, if that's not what your bar of success is, and your bar of success is being waking up every morning with a smile and being healthy, you can feel like you have abundance without really any material anything. And so Completely. 
yeah, so I I do think that you can be going bankrupt and live in abundance at the same time. And I did. I was literally happy for the first time in my life. I knew abundance was an inside job. Yeah. Like nobody had to preach it to me. Like I felt it and I knew it, Yeah. you know, and yeah. that was it. It was like, I know where it lives. It lives inside. It has nothing to do with all that external shit that I've been trying to claw onto for so many years. You know, the, the beautiful divine middle, there's a book called, by James Hollis, I think called Middle Passage. It's so good. It talks about how like in the middle part of our life that we will create, either we create or who Let's, you know, we could get into a big philosophical thing yeah. here, but basically a lot of us, I'll just say me, I found myself really pushed up against all of those things that really weren't working. So sometimes the house has to be completely burnt down yep. for, it did for me to wake up and go, what have you been up to sister? Like I didn't even, I didn't even realize what I'd been up to. Yeah. I think it's easy to get on sort of the hamster wheel where it's just like, you go to the next thing you're doing it, you're running the program. And sometimes people are lucky enough. I feel like one of those people that like that hamster wheel for me has actually been a positive thing and I've enjoyed it, but I see like, there's just a momentum that happens good or bad that you just kind of keep going down this path until you have something that kind of knocks you off course, which can be, a, in your case, a good thing, it sounds like. Yeah, and and my I was on the hamster wheel to avoid what was going on inside me internally. You see, it's like, why are we on the hamster wheel? Yeah. I'm on the hamster wheel now, you know what I'm saying, doing podcasts yeah. and doing business yeah. from a completely different place. Yeah. I know that this podcast is not going to make me. I'm grateful you know, yeah. for talking to you, but I know that this isn't going to make me any more of who I am already. Yeah. I'm very clear about that. Yeah. No, that's great. And so I'm curious, during that four years sort of soul search, like, when did you really find that happiness? Like, when did that kick in? Like, how long did it take you to really start to feel that? So I got the book, Man's Search for Meaning, and I read that. That was a little opening. And then I started studying religions for about six months. You know, I started diving into, I was raised really conservative Christian, Church of Christ, which basically you're going to go to hell for anything, which never made sense to me when I was young. I would question it and got even in more trouble because you just can't ask questions like that. And, or you're going to go to hell. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's what it was. It was like this, like, I'm just going to go to hell, but this, but this man in the sky or in heaven loves me. Yeah. But he's yeah. going to burn me if I do something wrong. Yeah. But he loves me. Yeah. yeah. I would ask those questions. So I started looking at different religions and everything. And then I was in, a, again, just a really dark place. And I, I'd taken my daughter to an acting lesson. And I was in a bookstore waiting. And I see this book from Byron Katie, Loving What Is. And I remember seeing that book like screaming at me and I turned around and I'm like, yeah, right. Like I'm in a pile of crap, loving what is <laughs> like, this is the opposite direction that I need to be going. Right. Yeah. And of course I pick up the book, devour it two days later and booked for her 10 day course. So I did her 10 day intensive. And when I went in, Eric, I was drinking, I was smoking pot at night and drinking like the double bottle of yellowtail Chardonnay. Cause it was cheap. Right. Like I was, was an alcoholic? I don't think so. What I was, was a person that wanted to shut my mind up right? Yep. Because it was so rampant with yep. negativity and fear and all the, you know, things that we don't desire. Yep. And I walked out of there 10 days later and was actually sober for a decade, just yep. zero desire, happy within my being. And yep. that was the beginning of when I found my happiness. Now, 
people can sometimes get triggered about my conversation during that time where I found my freedom was in taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about responsibility for a molestation when you were young or responsibility for an abusive marriage, like it's, it can be very uh, tricky ground. Yep. But what happened, I remember Byron Katie looked at me about my sexual molestation and she said, did you say no? And I just, I can still remember that moment. Actually, I want to cry right now. And I was like, I didn't. But it, it wasn't like that is, it's not condoning or excusing. But what it did is it woke up this power in me that I can say yeah. no, right? So that's what started happening. As I started questioning these beliefs, I started realizing, hold on, I contributed to some of this. And then I started taking responsibility for my life, 100% responsibility, which is a radical path. Yeah. But that's where I found my freedom. And I, it's such a hard topic. So I love that you say that because, and as someone that frankly hasn't had to struggle that much, so it's hard to come from me too. But it, from what I've observed, that ability to sort of take out the victim side of that mindset of like something happened to me. And it's like, well, what, you know, because things happen to everyone that does, that is part of it. But yeah. like, what, where is your power in it? And keeping that power just goes so far in every step. Yeah. So that was the turning point for me that flipped my entire life upside down. Because prior to that, I was like victim, victim, victim. This always happens. I can't get myself above ground. I can't, you know, it was like this, the hamster wheel was my victimhood. And me trying to think money's going to get myself out or success is going to get me out of this feeling of worthlessness and, you know, all these internal feelings I had that something outside me, whether it's God, money, you know, sex, what, you know, whatever. something's going to help me feel complete within myself. And once I started taking ownership of my part, even if it's a sliver, it's when I began to begin to find my freedom. And then it was like, Oh, game on. I know the recipe now. Start taking responsibility and clean this shit up and let's go. And it's fun from there. So did you go after those four years, did you go right into poopery? Was that like, how did that come to be? Yeah, so I did this course and then realized that. And then probably maybe six months later, I was at a dinner party Mm -hmm. and my brother-in-law said, can bathroom odor be trapped? Because we were, there was a a small bathroom. There was one bathroom in a really tiny house. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about someone's thinking of the bathroom. And I swear, Eric, like the room went into high def. I got chills up my arms because my hobby for 20 years had been essential oils. And I just said very clearly, like, I can do that. Like, I just saw it. I was like, oil floats on water. Like, I can create a barrier. And it took me nine months. And then I just started mixing in my house. Not one person thought it was a good idea. (laughs) That's typical. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. I just, I saw the vision. I knew I could do it. And it was just the nine month period in between of me figuring it out. I still didn't think I'm going to make a product and be the poo queen, you know, like none of that still, it was literally like, can I create what I saw and worked and, you know, blended and harassed all my neighbors and family. And one day, Nine months later, my husband walks out of the bathroom and he was over the oils and the testing and my kids. And they were just like, oh my God, you are insane. And he walks out of the bathroom one day and he just goes, oh my God, we're going to be millionaires. And I go, what are you talking about? And he goes, you realize what you've done? Like you've taken the smell out of 
his words were shit. And, you know, he was like, keep taking the smell out of that. And yeah. I was like, it works. And then, then I sent it out to a few friends that had been, you know, testing it for me and built a quick website and literally did a million dollars my first year with a $5 product. Started so hosting. That? would love to know, like, how did that kick off? And that was in 2007 to 2008. So I built yeah. the company during the recession. Yeah. And one of the, the good, some of the things that I had was an inborn optimism. Mm -hmm. I had an addiction to hope because when you've had a hard life, like you need hope. Okay. Yep. You can become addicted to it where, for example, during my second bankruptcy, I hoped something was going to come along and I hoped something was going to come and save me. It didn't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that can become unhealthy addiction. But right. the beauty of having a hard life has always had something to try to hold on to. So during the recession, people would say, look how, look at what's happening. You know, look at how horrible. And I kept blinders on and I would say, my reality is I'm abundant. And it was true. It wasn't like wishful thinking. It was like, I'm going to focus on what my true story is versus what everybody else is saying. I'm yeah. not going to get into, into fear concept, you know, constructs yeah. here. It's really true. It's like, I'm not going to buy into it. I get your business yeah. is failing. Mine's good. So I kept like these blinders on and kept really focused. And then I, what I realized is when people tried the product, they bought it. So it was just a game of, can I get the most samples out that I can? And then people, you know, you know, buy the product. And, and how did you, I mean, a million dollars in your first year coming from not building something like this in the past is really impressive. So like, was it doing, you know, virtual, like there was no Facebook ads in 2007 and eight. So where were you sampling? Where, where did you go to get that distribution? Yeah, such a good question. So I, I built a quick website and mm -hmm. sent it out to my few friends and said, would you mind telling other people about it? So they started ordering a little bit online. You know, I would hear that there's a radio announcer doing a live event. So, you know, my husband, if you know, or me would get on our car or motorcycle and drive over there and just try to get the product out. So our first big hit was somebody, Lex and Terry, which was a syndicated show talking about it. So we got a few orders there, but then one of my friends called and said they had a friend that has a store and would I sell them poopery? So, and I said, well, how do I do that? And they said, well, he has to buy the product at half price. So I doubled my price. I was selling the product for $5. I doubled it to 10 so I could half price it, you know, <laughs> to a 50% reduction for wholesale. Did my, you know, bought my first order there as, or delivered it. And Are it was so- out still were you yeah I had found a manufacturer that told me that they would make a thousand bottles I'm still with them today 15 years later oh, yeah yeah uh, but they took an investment in me and I've really stayed loyal to them as well we've grown a lot together but they told me they would make a thousand bottles and I remember thinking well hell I you know a thousand bottles it was a lot of money because I started with twenty five thousand dollars so and I thought well hell I'll put them in the trunk of my car and sell them if I have to right so yep. that was my backup plan it's like I can sell a thousand bottles if I stand out here on the street, I'll be yeah. okay. So yeah. I made it, made a thousand bottles. I did focus groups at Starbucks to see how the design was. I would go in and go, which bottle do you like? And yeah. I learned later their focus groups because I didn't know any of this, right? I would just say, which bottle? And I'd go in and go, which label? They go, what is it? Doesn't matter, just which label. So that's how the design for Poopery, the first design came about was these small little, I thought if you can afford a $5 cup of coffee, you can afford a bathroom freshener at this price, right? Yeah. 
So I create a small website. The first store buys it. The next day I get another call saying, hey, my friend Harold at his store bought it. Can I buy it too? And then it just kept going word of mouth. Wow. And, and this is one of the important things, Eric. I have so many entrepreneurs coming to me all the time. Mm-hmm. And I say, don't stop it good. Make yep. your product great. Because we don't talk about good things, but we definitely talk about great things. Yep. You know, and what I say is like, if I said, they said, Hey, you went to a new restaurant last night. How was it? And if I go, it was good. Like you're not going to go, but right. if you go, Oh my God, it was great. They have this appetizer that does this and this entree. It was incredible, but you're going to go. Yep. So the old thing about the word of mouth advertising <laughs> is yep. really true, but it's only true if it's truly exceptional solution to a current yep. problem that we have. Right. Yep. So I had the the luxury of that and people loved it. It was fun and funny. I I made it humorous because I saw people when I would talk about bathroom motor, they would back up, you know, at least eight eight inches (laughs) physically. (laughs) And I was like, hold on. It has to be funny because people don't even want to talk about this. So that's when I adopted the name Poopery, Spritz the Bow Before You Go, No One Else Will Ever Know. It helped soften the subject. Yeah. Yeah. No, you had to have fun with it. So would love to know. So the past 14 years, was it just all up into the right? The business was easy. Everything went well, or how has it been? Yeah. I, I say that very facetiously. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. People, I'm like, oh my God, I've been through. <laughs> What's really fun though, and what I teach in a live OS is that your external world reflects your internal world. So whenever you said, when your business is struggling, you're struggling internally, I would say you're probably struggling internally and it's reflected in your business struggling. Do you see? So what I found is that I was able to use my business as a path for personal development. And I'll give you a quick story. Like I had three COOs in and one of them had been in prison. Somebody forgot a background check. One of them had been in prison for seven years for defrauding the government of $20 million dollars. All right. one, of, one of them opened a manufacturing plant behind my back and was pumping millions of bottles of poopery through it. And another one created a whole company coup against me. So at some point I went, okay, three is a pattern. You know, one, yeah. okay, I'm stupid. Two, mm, you need to start looking at your, yeah, bad luck. Three, okay, we have a problem. Yeah. So I had interviewed this guy named Boyd for two years and I, I, he was so boring. And Boyd, Boyd knows this, I'm not talking about his back. I was like, I can't hire Boyd. He's so boring. He's so, he kept, kept, he kept emailing me. Finally, I go and I do EMDR on this pattern of these COOs. What I find, Eric, is that one of my first memories was cooking for my parents at four years old. This feeling that I had to be responsible and take care. Nobody's going to take care of me, yeah. right? It was, yeah. I, I, so I kept with these rose colored glasses, you know, the, the tent was, Oh, you're going to screw this up. This is going to be great. You're going to screw this up. Then I'm going to be able to come in and save the day. So that was the internal pattern that was going on. So I cleared this up in EMDR did, you know, some work around it. Then I hire Boyd and Boyd and I cry to each other. He's been with me for, I think five years. I don't even think about operations. Boyd is 
Like he's got it. I get chill bumps and feel teary. He's got it so much. But it's when I shifted that internal pattern, then I was able to actually see Boyd for who he was and what he could provide, which he has taught me support. It's so interesting to say that because hiring executives I've seen is it is like almost the people you date. It's a similar mindset where it's like, you will gravitate towards certain characteristics that could either benefit you or not, depending on where your mindset's at. And I talk about my business partner and COO is like, we, we call each other work wife because it's, yeah. this, you know, we both have our wives, we're both married, but we also like feel like it's a marriage together too, in a lot of different ways. And so having that mindset, it's similarly, again, when you're looking for a significant other, like you have to be in a good place to attract that good person. A lot of times it's, mm-hmm. yeah really resonates. And so going through all that, like, I'm curious, like what were kind of the pinnacle turning points? Like you did a million in your first year. So I'm assuming from the beginning, you're like, this is a success. Like year one, we have done it. This is successful. Where did it kind of go from there? Yeah. So we just did a million dollars a year increase every single year, you know? So in our, yeah, in our eighth year, we were doing like $8 million, but the bottom line was really healthy. You know, I was making a couple million dollars net. And for me, that was a lot of money and really had taken on no investors or anything. We just, I just kept stockpiling cash. Mm-hmm. And I wake up in the middle of the night in about year eight. And I looked at my husband at the time and I said, we got to go. He goes, what are you talking about? And I go, I got to go. Like, it's time for me to put the gas on things. Mm-hmm. And that's whenever I created the first video, Girls Don't Poop. Yeah. And the reason I did that, we were one of the first people in like a reverse funnel direct marketing or conversion type model. I knew I couldn't afford traditional advertising, TV and magazines. So I found some rogue, you know, people that were out there, the Mavericks and said, okay, you're out there selling this, you know, XYZ product. What if you actually had a product people loved? And we did have a cult following at that point. We were in, I think, 10,000 boutiques, but not anything mass. And that's when we did this video that cost $35,000. But within three days, we sold out all the product and we're $4 million in back order. And I could have had a bigger back order, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to um, fulfill them. So I cut everything off, which ended up being the, I guess, the the thing that ended that particular relationship with those marketers because oh. they they were getting paid on percent of revenue wow. and i'm i'm like i can't ethically keep selling product when i can't ship it you know right yep yeah so that happened and then you know and people were like oh what a great problem it really destroyed our company for a couple of years i got to tell you because our systems weren't integrated we didn't have the staff internally to handle the kind of business and exposure that we had and we also didn't have the distribution right eric so it's like we became a, a global sensation with 10,000 boutiques selling it was that 2016? When was what year? It was 2013. 13. Oh, okay. It was about seven years ago. Yeah. So we were one of the first five uh, viral videos and consumer products. You know, back then you'd had Old Spice, Blendtec. I think there was only a few that had ever. Our Shave Club was then. Well, that was after that. Yeah. Okay. Got it. I think, I think there was a year or two after that. They were beginning at 12, 2012. Oh, really? I worked, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, 
Okay. I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to look. But I think ours yeah. was 2013. Yeah. So yeah, but where, what really hurt is I didn't have a digital team set up. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have distribution, any retailers. And it really took us really about three years to get back from that big wobble. Even though sales were increasing, we were really hemorrhaging inside. So mm-hmm. it took us a while. And then getting into big box retailers was a completely different game then. So, you know, we had all the growing pains of being a small boutique brand, but hiring big CPG people and fighting internally. So all of that happened. Lots of growing pains. Yeah, and I love that you're saying this because people just, I'm sure from the outside, you had a viral video, everything went well. And again, I know this about Dollar Shave Club too, where it took them forever to catch up after that video. Yeah. You don't expect it. Like you expect some good results. That's why you would make a great video. But like when it goes insane, you're it's hard. Like it can actually collapse a company because you can end up doing things that are not cost effective to try to keep up that end up actually putting you underwater too. Like it's really hard to stay efficient and grow like that. Completely. And you have to realize, I remember the year before that laying on the beach on Maui, because before that video, I took like 12 weeks, 10 to 12 weeks a year, I'd either go down to the jungles in Peru doing ayahuasca, or I was laying on the beach in Hawaii, but I took a lot of time off. And I remember reading this Harvard Business Review article, and it goes, you're seven years old, you've hired your friends and family, anybody that would work cheap. And now you and I was like, oh, (laughs) right. that's it. I'm seven years old. I've hired people that could work cheap. I need experts now. You know, it was that we're seven and I kind of want to read that article. I haven't heard about it yeah, I, I'll have to send it to you, but it's, it's, I hate being so predictable, but yet it was like, holy shit, this is me. And so, so I didn't the- have the experts on staff. So as a lot of us are not reinventing the wheel here, like many, many, many people have been through a different product, maybe slight nuance of the product, but like a lot of the path is very similar. Completely, you know, every time. And and then even I read later Clayton Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma. Have you read that? Yeah. Yeah. And I realized that I had done exactly what he said. He said, at the beginning of innovation, you know, you are impatient for profit, impatient for growth, which I was. And then he said, then when the Me Too's come out, you flip it. And that's exactly what I did. And I remember going, that's exactly what I did because I was stockpiling cash. So then by the time I needed to put the gas on, I didn't have to get investors to do that. I had the cash to fund our next phase of growth. Yeah. Right. Yep. Makes yeah. sense. And so that puts you, so you, Got through that growth and that headache in about 2016. What kind of happened the past five years? The past five years has really been really internal struggles within myself of being burnt out, yet not wanting to give up control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's my baby and seeing people come in that have different ideas about the brand and the company. And I was so protective. So me really growing within myself to realize that the brand is going to be okay. You know, and I think really that every year it's, you know, tackling a different version of fear, you know, whether it's the economy, whether it's like, I'm so much better. I I do believe that all the plant medicines I've done have helped me with fear. But for example, last year, first quarter, I lost $4 million bottom line because a big retailer canceled a $16 million order during the pandemic that I'd already produced goods for. And I, re- I remember feeling just a little, well, it was funny. I felt just a little like, oh, you know, thank goodness I can lose $4 million and I'm okay. Yeah. Yep. But I did 
naturally go, I wonder what new wants to arise here. And I just had surgery and I was on timeout for a month and my assistant comes in and she says, I can't get you any hand sanitizer. And I'm like, why? And she said, it's all sold out. So I called my executive team and I said, hey, how quickly can we get in the hand sanitizer business? And from that moment to being on shelf was six and a half weeks. Wow. It was a miracle. So we sold millions of dollars in September of last year during the pandemic was our biggest month in company history. So instead of like, I've learned, and I guess you do learn, right? You learn how to handle the fear and just kind of go, okay, that sucks. What, what new wants to happen now? And that way you can shift and move. When in the past, I spent a lot of time in fear, like, oh my God, I've lost money. We're going down, you know, like that just wasn't even a response anymore. It was like, okay, let's go. What, what new wants to happen? Yeah. yeah. But really what we've done is I think the company suffered a lot in the past three years because of I was burnt out. I didn't want to do it anymore. Yet I wasn't willing to let go. Uh So I finally, during my surgery, hired a consultant CEO. He came in and I'd first given it to one of my team, one of my people that had worked with me for eight years as executive. She wanted to try. She tried for about three months and she's like, I'm so clear. I don't want to be a CEO. I can do it, but I don't want to do it. I'm like, great. So we hire a consultant and I realized for the first time in a number of years, I was able to breathe. And I was like, oh my God, I hate doing, I'm good at business, obviously. I've got yeah. a you know, debt-free, profitable yeah, company. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't come without a level of stress, right? It's like my genius is really in creativity. So as I hired a new CEO, so he was in, in last September, he came on board full-time. And I've been able to um, now develop, I'm coming out with a new, we're doing a whole new massive campaign in this summer mm-hmm. uh, for Poupree. And I've been spearheading that and I've just been so freaking happy. So you've been able to bring on a CEO and not just focus on the pieces you want to and not stress about the overall, so to speak, and can just do the things you love to do. That- Completely. And I wish I would have done that earlier, but I couldn't. You know, I couldn't let control let, let, let the control yeah. go. Again, internal process, right? It's a lot of people's dreams that are running a company. It's the, the exit is one, which you, did you end up taking on any outside money ever? Mm-mm, mm-mm. Yes, that's amazing. Never. Yeah, I think people realize that if you can avoid it, it's, a, it's awesome. And I say that as someone that invests in a lot of other companies, but we're bootstrapped. And being able to make the decisions you want to make and can do run the business the way you want it, back to that, like, you were making $2 million a year before you went into growth mode. Like that's plenty. You're not left wanting anything at that point. And so now to grow it, you're able to do it your way, taking money off the table. That just means you have to go invest it in something else, but you get to run, you know, the biggest, I guess, poop focused company in the world at this (laughs) probably. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you know, actually that's true. And that was by strategy. So a few years ago, you know, I had this big plan. I was going to become Paris and company, you know, and I was going to have, you know, room Paris, baby Paris, pet Paris, poop Paris, you know, and I was in Copenhagen. I had hired DDB in Copenhagen because I loved the way they had done some, an execution of a brand. And I flew to Copenhagen and this beautiful lady at DDB says, I have a question for you. And I'm like, yeah. And she says, well, you know, you're, you're bootstrapped. So you, you have limited funds, right. For which to grow your company. Why aren't you interested in becoming the bandaid or the red bull 
of the category you created rather than, you know, mm-hmm. all these other products. And I was like, oh my God. So she is really to thank awesome. for for that strategy. I cut all the other brands because I had been playing around for years with lots of other products and then just like laser focused on gaining shelf. And we've had major like $50 billion company competitors that we just beat. Yep. Knock on my wooden table here. You're, you are the Kleenex or the, you know, I guess Red Bull's an okay example, but you are that brand where it's like, you know, I'd say more Kleenex than Red Bull. Like if I'm going to go get, I'm going to get, even if I'm going to buy a different brand's, you know, spray, yeah. I'm getting their poopery. Like it's poopery. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And that was by design. It was like, yeah. oh, got it. Thank you for the strategy and focus. Let's go in. And now we're doing, we're launching a deodorant in July. It's amazing. It works 72 hours. It's the best natural deodorant. So we're now starting to branch out a little bit more into other products, which I feel excited about too. Awesome. Well, two more questions for you. And that actually leads okay. to the first one, which is what's next? Do you have some other things going on? would love to know what's coming down the pike for you. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I had three astrology readings this year because friends gifted them to me and everybody said I'm in a process of uh, death and rebirth. And I'm like, God, I feel it. But what I do know is I'm passionate about personal development. I told you I have a live OS. It's an online platform where I take people through. I've been doing personal development. I'm a personal development junkie. Been doing that as really my full-time job for 18 years. Uh, It's just business has been the side, the thing that's kept me financially okay. But when you were started talking about abundance to five women, and then you're like, maybe I should go build something. You're still doing that, which is a live OS. And that's been that has been your passion, so to speak. It's been my passion. It's where I started. It's now I have the street cred. Like when I talk to you about abundance, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I've, I've used my business as a Petri dish, seriously, for yep. 15 years going, I'm testing these principles on millions of dollar decisions. This isn't like I'm just some 20 year old that made this up and is going to tell you about manifesting. You know, it's like, no, this is, this is what I did. And I feel really passionate about that. But I also, you know, I've been toying around with next year. Well, right now I have four other brands I'm creating about creating some sort of incubator type thing, because I'm not going to stop. I love creating brands and I love birthing ideas what I don't like doing is running them. Yeah, which so, you have operational people around you now. It sounds like that if it does go, you can bring that in. Yeah, so that's what I'm looking at is how can I structure my life where I do just what I want to do? And, you know, and then we go on from there. I don't know what else is happening. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's great. And so last question, as someone that lack of a better term, you've dealt with a lot of shit in your life. What would your one piece of advice to be for someone that's really trying to go through their own stuff and you know wants to make it in the, whatever that vocation is, whatever that focus is, really wants to get to the highest level? Yeah, I think someone had given me, in my first bankruptcy, I went to go borrow more money from a banker. And the banker said he had been bankrupt several times. And he said, really successful guy in Arkansas, you know, but he said, realize when you, the the number one key in business is realize when you have a rotten fish and when you do throw it overboard and never look back. Right. Except Mm -hmm. I would change that in that whenever you, it's, it's really good to recognize when something's not working and when it's not working, instead of throwing it over, never looking back, I say, do look back, look Mm -hmm. back, harvest what you learned, You know, the story of Slack, you know, you've heard that story. Like it was a gaming company. They went through and said, what's left? Okay, well this. So harvest your learnings 
and what you have as fertilizer and use that to move forward because you're always going to have hard shit. You're always going to have difficult shit. It's just various varying levels of it. You're not going to not suffer. It's, it's, it's what makes us grow. So you might as well get comfortable with it. <laughs> That's my favorite line. It's like, just know that like if running a business is a shit show, like it's going to be like, and if you accept that, then the emotional hit is so much less because it's like, we have this crazy thing happening. Well, yeah, we run a business. Of course that's happening. Like yeah. things going to happen. So, it, and then you can just deal with it and take the kind of emotional, the panic, the stress goes away and you can just you can actually enjoy the process even when it is a bit crazy. Exactly. So. And oh, speaking of that, I did write, we wrote a, a sitcom called The Magical Mystical Shit Show that we're trying to sell right now. <laughs> I hope I get to see it. That is awesome. I love that. Yeah, it's fun. But that's it. Yeah. No, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. What an incredible story. And thank you for coming on Hawk Talk. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Eric. All right. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free. Identify opportunities in your marketing strategy. Then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.